Welcome to Coffee and Conservation, hosted by Dr. Beth Baker, Assistant Extension Professor in the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Aquaculture at Mississippi State University. From water and soil to habitat and food production, Dr. Baker and her guests discuss the necessity and complexity of conservation in the U.S. All right. Welcome back to another edition of Coffee and Conservation. I'm Beth Baker here at Mississippi State University. And today we have on Dr. Wes Berger, who is the Associate Director of the University's Forest and Wildlife Research Center and Mississippi Agricultural and Forestry Experiment Station. Welcome back. Glad to be here, Beth. Are you getting enough coffee this morning? I'm doing good. (laughs) Okay, good. Um, Dr. Berger was previously on the show, and we were talking a little bit about quail conservation, some of his earlier career. But we're moving today, kind of switching gears, and we're going to be discussing nutrient reduction and the importance of on-farm conservation. So if our listeners aren't familiar with this concept of nutrient reduction or what I'm referring to, um, meaning uh, we're going to be talking about reducing nutrients that move from landscapes um, all over the world, but also in the United States, into our water systems, and particularly uh, from our riverine systems as they move through the country to outlets uh, in our marine systems. And um, this is a hot topic in the Chesapeake Bay, in the Great Lakes, and also in the Gulf of Mexico, where annually there is a dead zone or a hypoxic zone, an area of low oxygen um, that cre- that makes it very difficult for marine life to survive in this area um, that is thousands of kilometers um, in square kilometers in size. Um, I think the projected one for the summer of uh, 2019 here is expected to be over 7,000 square kilometers. So it's a significant size. Um, And it's a major problem. And it it causes um, issues economically as well as environmentally. So that's what we're going to be getting into today. So for those of you who aren't listening uh, or who aren't familiar with that, even if you're you're Googling um, hypoxia, um, hypoxic zones, dead zones, nutrient reduction, um, that should take you to information uh, that that um, can get you up to speed. And I'll try to put a few links in the show notes too, so that um, you can readily get to resor- resources if you want a little more background information on that. But it's kind of interesting when you get into specific areas of research um, that the the. Uh, community of folks you end up working with isn't that large. <laughs> the people that do s- the similar work than you um, at a national level and a global level kind of become smaller the more specialized you get. Um, so can you tell our listeners a little bit about how you came to get involved with some of these initiatives around nutrient reduction or that aim to reduce nutrients on landscapes and in agricultural systems to our downstream water bodies? Sure, I'd be happy to, Beth. And first, I'd like to say what we're really focused on is reduction in nutrient transport. And so we all recognize nutrients are a good thing. Right. Plants depend on nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, as well as an, a, a bunch of different micronutrients. And so nutrients in and of themselves are essential. And we use nutrients in agricultural systems to increase plant performance and yield and productivity. And so when you think about one of the most important, globally important discoveries in the last 200 years um, was the role of nutrients in plant performance. Mm -hmm. And um, 
that stimulated the Green Revolution and understanding that uh, that nutrients limit plant growth. And from an ecology standpoint, we call that Liebig's Law of the Minimum, that um, some nutrient is going to limit the performance of a plant. And if you address that nutrient, then then you can elevate the performance to some new level until something else becomes limiting. And so we don't want to um, leave the impression that nutrients are bad and that we're trying to reduce nutrients. What we're trying to do is keep the nutrients where they belong. Absolutely. I'm glad you, you know, that's definitely the way I, I think about it. So I'm glad you clarified that for our listeners as well. And so what we want is recognizing that we um, will need to use nutrients in agricultural systems to enhance production. How do we ensure that we put the right amount of nutrients in the right place at the right time to produce the right outcome? And that's really what nutrient management is about. Because as, as you alluded, when those nutrients move off site, they can have unintended consequences. Um, and so they uh, are carried off the field by rainfall and in, in rainfall events, and they go into streams, and those streams end up in rivers and lakes, and then ultimately in the Gulf of Mexico. And as you suggested, um, that leads to what we call eutrophication. That is these algal blooms and mm-hmm. in freshwater systems, it might be filaminous algae, it might be that, that clogs a water treatment intake plant, or it might be um, reducing um, mobility, uh, clogging uh, water bodies. Um, and in, in saltwater systems like the Gulf of Mexico, it, it can turn into hypoxic zones. And, you know, hypoxic zones are a natural occurrence. Mm-hmm. They occur all over the world. They always have. Wherever you have fresh water coming into salt water, it's carrying nutrients that have eroded off that land. And erosion itself is even a natural process. It's always happened. But what we're trying to do is reduce the impact of our activities, human activities, because when we till the soil, when we produce crops, when we um, expose that soil to, to raindrops um, mm-hmm. that displace it, then we create a situation in which that natural process is accelerated. And so the goals of nutrient management are to, um, to reduce the impact of our actions uh, in moving those nutrients from the terrestrial systems into the aquatic systems. And that's just one more piece of the conservation puzzle. So you're probably wondering, well, how's the avian ecologist, <laughs> how's the wildlife biologist get involved in nutrient management? And it's really not that big of a stretch mm-hmm. because um, although my roots are in avian ecology and population biology, for over 30 years I've been working in agricultural systems looking for ways that we can integrate conservation practices mm-hmm. into cropping systems in ways that make sense to the producer and either are neutral or positive from an economic standpoint and produce environmental outcomes that um, are desirable. And so conservation ag systems is is right kind of in the middle of my lane mm-hmm. and where I've been operating for years. My role today is associate director of the Ag Experiment Station. Um, I direct research programs for, for all of agriculture, 
across Mississippi State. And so whether it's row crop agriculture or um, genomics or animal system agriculture uh, or conservation, um, I work across all those programs. But um, the the nutrient management practices that you might use as a a water quality person really are the same ones that I would use as an avian ecologist um, to enhance bird populations right. in the upland. So let's take the the Black Prairie Physiographic Reef. Starts in northeast Mississippi and runs down through and across Alabama. Includes the Tennessee Tom Bigby watersheds and then hooks up with the Mobile watershed. That area is the most endangered, imperiled grassland system in the eastern U.S. Less than 1% of that historic eastern tallgrass prairie system remains. From an avian ecologist standpoint, that's important to me for quail conservation, for dick sizzle conservation, for butterfly conservation. Mm -hmm. Um, But the cropping practices in that prairie upland influence sediment and nutrient transport into those water bodies, the streams that flow off the, um, out of the prairie, into the Tennessee and Tom Bigby rivers, into the Mobile River, and those river systems also happen to be the area of highest mollusk diversity in the entire U.S. Mm-hmm. And so to improve quail habitat and butter conservation in the uplands, what would I want to do? I'd want to get restored grasslands back on the landscape. To enhance water quality, same thing. you're going to want to get grasslands <laughs> back in the uplands. And that might not mean necessarily taking all ag out of production, but it might be mean putting buffers, right. grassland buffers around the edge of those fields. And so whether they're water quality goals or whether they're pollinator goals, or whether they're uh, quail population goals, um, they all fall back on a suite of conservation practices that integrate non-crop, natural or semi-natural herbaceous communities back into the landscape in an intentional fashion, where those semi-natural communities are a designed element or component of that agricultural matrix. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm so glad that you explained, um, you know, the complexity of nutrient transport and how, how important it is, you know, that everything needs nutrients to survive, but it's this excess in transport that can create issues environmentally um, because it is such a complex issue. And also on the side of conservation, and when talking about these different practices, um, for my folks out there that can't really picture this, but maybe you're health-minded, think of it as um, a practice that would promote whole system health as opposed to a Band-Aid or a medicine here or there. We're talking about these multifunctional practices that can be habitat as well as um, carbon sequestration and, and water quality and all the things that you mentioned. Um, so, yeah, I want to get back to this complexity of the issue, though, because that's, I mean, as someone who works on this all the time, that's one of the things I continually struggle with, that this is a really complex issue, not only in the physical science or the chemistry of nutrient transport, but also um, how it intersects 
social sciences because we're talking um, private lands conservation, voluntary conservation, but policy as well. So it just it becomes a very complex issue. Um, and we were both down in Baton Rouge this year for the Federal Hypoxia Task Force meeting where um, – you know, there was a specific citizen group. I don't know if you remember this. There was a citizen group after we gave kind of our um, all of the plan talks where um, folks could just weigh in from the public on, on their general concerns. And there was a citizen group that was voicing concerns related to a lack of progress related to reducing nutrients that move to the Gulf of Mexico and, and the size of that hypoxic zone. But what are some of these challenges related to actually improving nutrient management and reducing nutrients and runoff that make it so challenging. I mean, I know we could do um, a whole years-long show on this, but just some of the things that maybe the general public doesn't understand about that it's it's not simple. Sure, and it is a very complex issue. So let, let's talk for a minute about the Hypoxia Task Force goals. Based on the best available science, these five federal agencies that are part of the Hypoxia Task Force, in partnership with the 12 states that border the Mississippi River um, and their science agencies, have developed an action plan. And that action plan says, we believe to reduce the size of the dead zone or the hypoxic zone in the Gulf of Mexico to historic levels, we need to reduce the nutrients that are being put into the Gulf of Mexico at the mouth of the Mississippi River by about 40%. So the goal for nitrogen is 40%. The goal for potas- mm-hmm. or, uh, phosphorus is about 45%, I believe. And so that's the high-level goals that say we think, based on the science, that if we reduce those inputs by this amount, that that dead zone will be reduced and be of a more natural size. And so then the next question is, what are the sources of nitrogen and phosphorus that are feeding that. There's a lot of sources. Mm-hmm. And so there's what we call point sources. Those are things like water treatment plants. Right. So every municipality, every community, every city has a water treatment plant, a wastewater treatment plant that collects and treats the waste that's coming out of all our residential buildings and industrial buildings. Well, we think of that as a sewage treatment plant, but um, that's those are nutrients is one of the elements of those. There's nitrogen and phosphorus, potassium, and other nutrients that are in there, and um, so those wastewater treatment plants are designed to remove contaminants and bacteria and other things that might be carried with that wastewater, um, but they also to varying degrees of success, try to deal with the nutrients that are coming out of there. And when that water leaves the wastewater treatment plant and goes in a river, that's a point source. Mm-hmm. One pipe emitting the fluent into a water body, that's a point source. And if you're curious mm-hmm. about where your water goes from your house, just remember we all live on the same planet, so it has to go somewhere. <laughs> exactly, that's <laughs> and it's right. it's usually back into the environment. <laughs> that's right. We try to put it back in the environment in a relatively clean state. Um, but it does carry excess nutrients. And Mm -hmm. so point sources are a big source of nutrients. And then there's what we call non-point sources. Those are diffuse sources. Things like you fertilize your lawn 
and then it rains and it runs in the gutter and goes in a stormwater uh, system and then goes into a creek. Right. That's a non-point source. It doesn't come from one pipe putting a fluent into it. It comes from whole neighborhoods. Well, agriculture, row crop fields, agricultural landscapes are a non-point source. Now, when a producer puts nutrients onto a field, they fertilize it. And the goal uh, is for it to go to the plant. The goal is to go to the plant. That would be the most cost-efficient for the, the landowner as well. That's like right. That is his goal or her goal. The producer wants every penny of nitrogen that they put on that corn crop to end up in that grain head mm-hmm. because they've paid for it. Right. And so the producers have no desire to waste it. But systems are not 100% efficient. And you put the nitrogen out, and then a rainfall event happens, and some of it's carried off the field. Um, or you put the phosphorus out, and if it's a tile drain system, it percolates down through the soil with rainfall and, and ends up in a tile drain that goes out into a creek. Or if it's phosphorus, um, it phosphorus binds to soil particles, and one of the primary ways that it's carried off fields is in sediment Mm -hmm. that is uh, carried off the field by a big rainfall event where you have erosion. And so in agricultural systems, they are a non-point source of nutrient pollution in water bodies. But it's not because the producer um, uh, doesn't care. Right. It's because... um, it's a, a complex system. <coughs> and those non-point sources, to the best of our our understanding, the best science, we think those probably account for maybe as much as 60% of the total nitrogen being delivered um, to the Gulf of Mexico. And so we can't address hypoxia in the Gulf of Mexico or harmful algal blooms in Lake Erie or in Chesapeake Bay without addressing nutrient transport off agricultural lands, mm-hmm. these non-point sources. And so agricultural producers, instead of being looked at as part of the problem, we need to look at them as part of the solution. Because if uh, we work together with agricultural producers to reduce nutrient transport, we're making them more profitable, helping them to be better stewards, and producing a societal benefit of cleaner water. Right. Absolutely, and that's that's the the perfect uh, place for us to go next because, we're, you know, we're always looking forward. Where do we, you know, how do we improve? What do we do next? How do we make progress on these different scientific issues? Um, and as you mentioned, part of making some big gains toward reducing nutrient transport that lies within within improving farming and fertilizer efficiency, as you mentioned. So related to the science, science and technology and maybe even adoption of that technology as the experiment station associate director, where do you see the science moving toward the future? So there are many practices, we call them best management practices mm-hmm. um, or conservation practices that can be used to reduce that nutrient transport. And when we talk about producers adopting conservation practices, there's generally not one silver bullet that they adopt and bingo, it takes care of all their nutrient loss. Uh, It just doesn't work that way. And so really what we're trying to do is design 
conservation management systems or production systems that include suites of practices that collectively produce a cumulative reduction in nutrient transport. And so let me describe some of those. And the role of the experiment station is to do the science that develops and validates the technology or the practices and then to verify and validate the efficacy of those practices. And then in our land-grant university system, the role of extension is to take that technology and help transfer it to the end users, to our producers. And so the land-grant system has both the research and the technology transfer or outreach tools to be able to develop new technology and move it into production uh, with our producers. And so as an experiment station, what we would do is is try to develop um, and evaluate specific practices and then quantify their relative efficiency. So let's just start with the kind of fertilizer that you put out. There are many forms of nitrogen that can be put out, and they can be put out at different times of the year, at different rates, Mm -hmm. and um, in different ways. And so some technologies like slow-release fertilizer, so the chemical formulation of that nitrogen in that fertilizer pellet can influence whether it is easily available for um, to be put into solution and transported off the field or whether it's released slowly over time at the rate the plant can use it. And then the timing of fertilizer application influences um, the degree to which it's either carried off the field or used by the, the plant. The rate of fertilizer is important. How much nitrogen do you need to raise a 200 bushel an acre crop of corn? Um, So understanding the relationship between um, uh, performance, crop performance, or yield performance, and fertility is is an important um, question. And then the recognition that that um, dose-response curve is not the same for every field. You might, have lo- you might have lost some folks on dose response okay. curve. So <laughs> the expectation is that as you increase the nitrogen inputs, the yield will increase as well. Right, but we know it doesn't increase exponentially. Not forever. That's right. And there, it's diminishing returns. So as you continue to increase um, the inputs, the, the fertilizer, um, yield will increase up to some point, and then it'll kind of level off. And then as you continue to increase the input, it may actually, the the nutrient may become toxic and your yield falls. And so there's some optimal amount of nutrients, say nitrogen, to put on to get the highest yield. And then somewhere below that level is what's an economically optimal um, yield. And so we call that a dose response curve or a yield response curve. And, And we're increasingly understanding uh, that that yield potential varies throughout the field. And so the dose response curve that's appropriate in this part of the field might not be appropriate in that part of the field. All that's to say, raising a crop is complex. 
and um, there are a lot of tools that we can use to make sure that we're using those nutrients um, efficiently. Some more BMPs might be once you put the right form of the fertilizer out on the field in the right timing at the right rate, then how do you keep that on the field and keep it from moving off the field? Edge of field practices like buffers can trap sediment and the associated nutrients can provide a plant community that will absorb and use those nutrients before they leave the field. Um, Things like wetlands uh, that capture the runoff from a field and then use natural processes to uh, microbial processes to process that nutrients or those nutrients and, and wetland plants that take up and sequester those nutrients. Collectively, all of these practices form a conservation system. And so um, we try to do the science to understand the role of each of those individual practices and, and then the cumulative effect of all those in reducing and retaining nutrients um, on the field to keep them from going into the water bodies. Right. We've had some we've had some good conversations in the past about soil health and field management and how to improve that fertilizer efficiency too. So I feel like there's so much room to grow there. Uh, the science around it evolving and the different molecular scale um, technologies. And for folks, if that seems like it's m- too much information you could really think about it pretty similarly to a human system you know you can't take in nutrients forever and keep growing that at some point you'll just excrete them as waste because it's too much for your body to take in um and everybody is a little different just like different parts of a field could be a little different requiring different amounts of nutrients so there's so many there's so many analogs there between our human health and this ecosystem health that's really kind of interesting and and it, it you know if if you link back to one of the soil health podcasts with dr billy kingery uh we make even more of those connections and and how a lot of the research from um that's coming out on the human microbiome can parallel to soil microbiome. So link back if you want to check those out. A couple things that we didn't really touch on that I just want to mention, um, especially when it comes to timing, how influential and out of anyone's hands of control uh, rainfall is. And just discharge volumes. You know, we're experiencing flooding here in the southeast right now, particularly in Mississippi, where we've got some backwater flooding um, in the lower delta region, which is 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 more catastrophic than than most people realize, unless you're down there, because there's not a ton of media coverage. Um, but from someone who monitors water quality once it leaves the field, there's a ton of precipitation that we get in this region, um, and and you know, there's I. Being that I'm on that end of it, I have this immense respect for the power of water, Um, you know, that it can blow out BMPs that you put in on the ground. It can take out uh, man-made equipment that's anchored. Um, And so that at the farm level is something, even if the farmer gets the timing right, if a major rainfall comes, you know, it's just kind of out of our hands. And it's not that different than the way cities and any any of you that live in an urban area often can't control stormwater and what stormwater will pick up in a city in a parking lot in your yard and, and take with it. 
Um, so there's certain aspects of this management that that are even even further down the road of how will we manage that in the future if populations grow, if landscapes change, if urban areas change. Um, that I always kind of find just fascinating or maybe I stay up in the middle of the night thinking about it. I don't know. <laughs> but I wanted to at least mention it that, you know, rainfall precipitation plays a, a role in this as well. Sure, Beth. And as you know, the majority of your nutrient loss on a field occurs in just a few events. Right. And so it's not uniformly being lost over the entire annual cycle, but with the two or three or five big rain events, that's when most of your sediment is lost and most of your nutrients Mm -hmm. are lost off a field. And so um, you can't control the timing of the rainfall, nor can you control the volume of the rainfall. But what you can do is have in in place conservation practices that when those events happen, they um, mediate or ameliorate the effect of that rainfall event. Provides some protection. Some buffering. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's exactly right. And so things like filter strips, although they're not 100% efficient, they will slow that runoff Mm -hmm. and cause sediment to, to drop out. And, and prevent it from leaving the field. Things like terraces or prairie strips in a field serve the same function. Things like wetlands um, serve... Incredible flood protection. That's exactly right, because they, mm-hmm. they provide a reservoir, some water holding capacity to um, keep some of that water on the landscape and then gradually release it instead of releasing it in those big high velocity events that carry all that sediment and nutrients and so we can't control the weather but we can create landscapes that are more resilient and have greater capacity to uh, to accept those mm-hmm. rainfall events and that's been called kind of the green structure in the sense of using natural features, mm-hmm. wetlands. Uh, yep, even prairie systems in the Midwest. Um, exactly, using those natural or semi-natural non-crop components, features in the landscape to help buffer um, that system and give it more capacity to absorb those um, those environmental events. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I feel like we're or I feel like we're going to have to do uh, maybe even multiple follow up shows related to um, nutrient transport and the working groups within this because there's so many things we didn't get to touch on today. Um, but I'm glad earlier in the show that you mentioned land grant university isn't touched on experiment stations but still held some cards in your pocket because we'll have you back to talk more about the history and importance of land grant universities and those experiment stations but thank you again for coming on today thank you beth as always you can find more information on our website or in the show notes after the show and we always want to acknowledge and thank our primary sponsor the mississippi natural resources conservation service for their support of this podcast Thanks for joining us for Coffee and Conservation. To find out more about the topics discussed, visit the REACH website at reach.msstate.edu 
or the Mississippi State University Extension Service website at extension.msstate.edu.